This is Stephen Fry, and you're listening to Stephen Fry's Podgrams. Well, hello, one, and hello, all. And <coughs> oh, God, I'm not going to start a podgram with a frog in my throat, am I? I hope not. <coughs> anyway, welcome. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what an attractive way with which to open a podgram. Please accept my apologies. Anyway, welcome, as I say. It's delightful to be back for a third podgram. And firstly, let me get out of the way some small matters of housekeeping. I want to express my genuine pleasure at the number of people who have downloaded the original podgrams. And I'm deeply flustered and touched by your responses. Many of those responses, however, do show me that I am not nearly as clever as I think I am. There is almost no subject on which one can expatiate, uh, on which others don't know a great deal more than one does oneself. And it is very humbling, or at least it ought to be, if I weren't so sunk and lost in self-regard, very humiliating, very sobering to realise that one doesn't know nearly as much as one thinks one does. Every time I make a claim... You out there, test it against your reason, your experience, and your knowledge, and if it's found wanting, um, you say so, and that's extremely useful. There are many who believe that the world is entirely grown stupid. I am not one such. I am always impressed by how much others know and how they think and how clearly they see. And part of the pleasure of the internet and part of the pleasure of doing this kind of broadcast is the knowledge that there is feedback. So do keep your feedback coming. Uh, the address is on the screen, as they say. Now, uh, how am I? I'm jolly well. You may remember my first podcast was all about uh, all about my arm. Well, it's a lot better. A lot better, thank you for asking me. <coughs> you can probably hear I've got one of those strange colds at the moment. I don't know where they come from. They're all over America. <laughs> I do. Rather like a late winter, you know. There's this bizarre feeling that uh, uh, it's never going to end. The groundhog's never going to see its shadow. Anyway, um, I have nothing to moan about. I'm in Colorado. What could be nicer than that? Um... Near the town of Aspen, actually, which is a very swish skiing resort. I don't ski. Uh, I tried once. I found it absolutely foul. I know it's one of the most popular things in the world, so my saying it's foul is going to endear me to very few of you, but it's my own incompetence. I'm a very, very, very uncoordinated kind of person, and I'm afraid I'm just absolutely hopeless. I've got about three goes at raising my own body weight before I fall back exhausted like a blubbery whale rocking and, and splashing like a bin liner full of yoghurt. It's all very unfortunate. Uh, I don't have the kind of body that responds well to any command to be coordinated and agile and swift and neat and nimble and balanced. But I like alpine resorts, and uh, Aspen is certainly one of the most gorgeous I've ever seen. So I enjoyed getting a, you know, a ski pass, going to the top of the mountain, to the you know, high, highest cafe and drinking hot chocolate with a tot of rum in it and reading a book and writing postcards or whatever. Very enjoyable. The air is good. And others can tumble down the mountainside and do their snow plows and very, very elegant and marvellous they are at it. But I don't really envy them. Anyway, that's what I've been doing. Not that I've been sitting around in cafes because we've been filming part of this ongoing documentary I'm doing. I shan't bore you any more about that. But being in Colorado can't but put me in mind of Oscar Wilde. Oh, no, Stephen's on his hobby horse again. He's so obsessed just because he played him once in a film. He thinks he's a bloody expert. Well, I understand your feelings, and I'll try not to be too... Hmm, too... 
I'll try not to be too, 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 too about Oscar, but I am deeply fond of him, and uh, occasionally he is brought to mind. Um, we'll come to why in Colorado in a moment, but first I have to tell you that I impaled on something of the horns of a young dilemma. It's, well, not really dilemma, put it this way. My first podgram was like this. It was a loosely unstructured, twittering, improvised, blying into a microphone, in that case talking about my broken arm, for which, incidentally, many thanks to you uh, for all your kind suggestions as to how I should get better quicker and your comparisons with your own broken limbs and your general sympathy and condolences. I'm very grateful. Uh, it is getting better. I've had some physiotherapy when I was in England between two bouts of American filming, and I'm supposed to be doing exercises every day. Of course, I'm hopeless at that, so uh, it's a bit unfortunate. I'm going to have to go back to England and be thrown around the room by New Zealand women again, which they're um, excellent at, I have to say, throwing men around rooms, uh, much as they're excellent at rugby, I suppose. It's something about the New Zealand spirit uh, maybe it's hatred of the English and of males in general, but they seem to go into their work with vim and alacrity. Anyway, I'm sort of nesting into somewhat unfortunate uh, sub-clauses of my own argument here, so uh, where are we? Let's try and extract ourselves from the deepest nest, outside from the arm, back into my young dilemma. Yes, my first program, if you recall, was improvised, and some people thought that was a, a mess, and it demanded something better, more structured. So my second one was a blessé that was read out. It was a more considered piece, if you like, more reflective. However, some of you didn't like that, and said, what's wrong with the first style, if I can call it a style? We preferred that. It's just you, naked, raw, and trembling, if you like. <coughs> and I'm sure no one would like. But... I have come to a decision, there, therefore. Uh, the odd-numbered, the odd-numbered podgrams will be like this, improvised and twittery, and the even numbers will be more considered. I, I think that's a reasonable compromise. However, <coughs> we're back in Colorado. Oh, God, it must be miserable for you having to listen to my wheezing, coughing. I do apologise. I'm just going to stop and take a sip of water. Do you mind? Oh, all right. Hmm. That's better. He was an extraordinary man, Oscar Fingerlow Flaherty Wells Wilde, as I'm sure many of you are aware. But not necessarily extraordinary for the reasons many people think he was extraordinary. I don't want to say that he was misunderstood. He obviously was in his lifetime, to some extent, misunderstood, or at least, perhaps, it would be fairer to say he was understood. And the threat he represented to the established order of thinking, the threat he represented to codes of morality, to religion, was real, inasmuch as if you take him seriously, by which I don't mean earnestly, good Wildian word, I just mean, if you like, at face value, uh, if you regard his paradoxes as the truth, then you do see that he turned upside down just about everything that Victorians, and even we today, think. When he was sent from Dublin by his great teacher Mahaffey to Oxford as the best classicist that Trinity College Dublin had ever sent to England for further study, he arrived with a great reputation, and this he rapidly built on. He became a famous undergraduate, internationally famous. It's an extraordinary idea, isn't it? Even in the days of Web 2.0 and YouTube and MySpace and sit on my Facebook and all these social networking organisms 
I don't think there are any famous students in the world today. There are those who've done weird things up their noses or on musical instruments and created YouTube films that have been a, a kind of succès fou, as the French would say. But I don't think famous. I don't think been, there have been cartoons of undergraduates or skits and lampooning essays in Punch as there were of Wild. He'd enraged a lot of people by saying his ambition at Oxford was to live up to his collection of blue and white china. And that kind of thing was like a red rag to a, to a very Victorian slavering bull. When he arrived at Oxford, actually, uh, he had to do, pretty soon, one of his uh, exams, which was a viva, which is like a, a live exam, a uh, viva voce, live voice exam, rather than a written one, put it that way. So you appear in front of a panel of dons and you have to impress them with your knowledge and they question you tersely. And in his case, he had to prove not only his knowledge of classical Attic Greek, but of New Testament Greek, the, the Greek of the New Testament in the Bible. And so he was handed a Greek New Testament and opened it, with, it was opened more or less at random and he had to translate. And it was the Passion, the Crucifixion of Christ. So he started to translate as fluently as anyone could because his Greek really was excellent. He won many prizes for it. And his New Testament Greek was no worse than his classical Greek. And they were very impressed and said, thank you, Mr. Wilde. But he carried on translating. They said, Mr. Wilde, you could stop that. But still he went on, Mr. Wilde, stop. And he replied, oh, please let me go on. I'm dying to see how it all turns out. Now, that sort of attitude didn't endear him to many of the people who ran Oxford who were in holy orders. And they found him pretentious. And that's a, a, an English response to people like Wilde that continues to this day. If we don't understand or we feel threatened or we feel our values of athleticism and healthiness in particular, our sporting values, our traditional values are undermined by smart, clever people in dazzling raiment, then we will naturally call them pretentious because it's a lot easier than believing them. And maybe some of them are pretentious anyway. The point is this. Wilde was well known even before he'd written anything of value. He wrote some poems which won him prizes, uh, but generally speaking, it was the way he spoke, the way he dressed in velvet and silk, uh, the things he admired, the things he believed in. It was a, a breath of extraordinary fresh air in the black, morally certain world of Victorian England to have this man with the lilt of Irish without the brogue, if you like, just, as it were, rubbing the varnish off the world, seeing things anew. Of course, as I say, not every Englishman liked it, and those healthy, traditional, bourgeois Englishmen, Gilbert and Sullivan, the official satirists of the suburban classes, they wrote an opera called Patience, which was largely an attack, or at least a very friendly attack, on the nature of this aesthetic movement led by Wilde. And there was a character called Bunthorne who was quite clearly based on Oscar Wilde. And the thing was a great success. Again, that shows, I think, some of Wilde's extraordinary achievements as, big, as, a, as a famous young man, that he should have an operetta written about him. And everyone was very pleased, particularly Richard Doyley Cart, of course, who ran the Savoy Opera group, which put on the works of Gilbert and Sullivan. However, it was traditional for them to take the work and put it on in Broadway, on Broadway in New York. And 
in New York and in America, no one had heard of Oscar Wilde. No one had the faintest idea who he was. So Richard Doddy Cart conceived the notion that he should pay Oscar Wilde a fabulous sum of money to go round America lecturing and being aesthetic and being all, you know, silk-bloused and, uh, and velvet-trousered so that people would know who he was and would then go to see things like patients, and um, Richard Doddy Cart would make money in New York. It seemed a very good scheme, and Wilde was delighted with it. He loved the idea of going to visit America. America was a remarkable new country. Uh, it had got through its civil war and was beginning a pace to become quite staggeringly prosperous. No coincidence that the civil war and its eventual outcome allowed such prosperity. Uh, so he was thrilled to go. Uh, Dickens had gone before him, and it was a, it was generally considered a marvelous tour for a, for a sophisticated European to go to America, to impress the Americans and to be impressed by America. And he intended both to happen. He arrived on the SS Arizona in, I think it was January '81, sometime around there, and stepped off onto the dock famously remarking that he had nothing to declare to customs except his genius. Um, he professed himself disappointed with the Atlantic. He thought it was going to be wetter. And then, of course, there were newspaper reports about him. He was asked his opinion of everything. Uh, he was asked his opinion of New York before he'd even stepped into the streets of Manhattan. And he was generally something of a success. There were many newspapers that attacked him. The Americans didn't want to be thought of as a soft touch, and some of them were very virulent in uh, enmity towards him and thought he was an imbecile and pretentious and all the rest of it, and they drew nastier cartoons. He arrived eventually in Colorado, where I am, and not far from where I am. He was in the town of Leadville, now, Leadville was a silver mine, despite its name. I suppose once it had been a lead mine. And one of Oscar Wilde's lectures was on Benvenuto Cellini, the Renaissance goldsmith and silversmith, the metal worker, if you like, and painter and sculptor and everything, an adventurer. And he gave a great lecture on that subject. His other, his other topic uh, was The House Beautiful, which is probably the first time anyone had really talked authoritatively about interior decoration uh, as a subject in its own right, given its own weight and value. And indeed, Wilde was a real expert, a very early expert on interior decoration. The way he had a white room in his house in Tite Street later, the furniture, the collections of paintings, the way he assembled them, the way he presented a room was, again, something very, very new. And the idea that you should think about it was revolutionary, really. But that's a whole other subject. Ah, that's better. I hope you can't hear the lavatory system filling up in the background because that would reveal that I've had a little pause and that I go to the lavatory and I won't have you thinking me human. So, around this time, Oscar was asked a question, a very intelligent question, actually. He was asked why he thought America was so violent. Seems an odd question at first blush, but... It was an America that had just emerged from the most attritional, the bloodiest civil war in the history of Western humanity, so far as we know. It was a struggle for the heart and soul of America, for the future of America, and I think they were still dazed by the violence that had erupted in their own country. It was such a noble experiment, founded with such hope and in such high ideals, and yet it descended into this, this terrible bloodbath. Not only that, but the West, which was being developed, 
<laughs> developed. That had caused violence too. Violence, of course, to the indigenous population, the Native Americans, the Indian tribes, but um, violence of all other kinds. The gunslingers were becoming very famous. Gang warfare was erupting in Chicago and New York. This was all very puzzling to people of intelligence, people of intellectual curiosity. Why should a country that was established on principles of peace, tolerance, wisdom, all the glories of the Enlightenment have descended into such terrible internecine strife. Of course, the usual answer as to why people get violent is that they depart from family values. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that argument. After all, most murders take place within families. Most violence takes place within families. Even organised crime is structured according to families. It's a ghastly parody of a family, but the idea that family values are responsible for stopping people being violent seems to me to be so insane as hardly to worth repeat. I, I hope you take my point. That's it, isn't it? Uh, family values and violence, there seems to be no more relation between them than a skunk and a rattlesnake. They're both nasty, but they're not connected. Except in the great scheme of life, the colours of the wind and the circle of how do you do. But Wilde had a different explanation, and it's one that on the surface seems very trivial. Why, Mr Wilde, do you think America is such a violent country? I can tell you why, he said. It's susceptible readily of an explanation. America is such a violent country because your wallpaper is so ugly. Now, that seems... You might snort with laughter at first and say, well, how amusing, but... Part of you may say, well, this is just a typical peacocky, primped camp remark from a shallow and trivial man who thinks it's amusing to say things like that. But actually, to understand what the aesthetic movement is all about, one has to take that quite seriously. Instead of judging things <laughs> by being good or bad, things are judged by whether they're beautiful or ugly. And we may say beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but actually it's a lot easier to judge when things are beautiful than it is when things are bad or good. We spend our time puzzling dreadfully over whether we can interpret something as being wicked or whether it's virtuous. However, beauty, beauty, beauty acts on us in a very real way. And what Wilde was partly saying is that if we look out of the window into our world, we see things that are universally and entirely beautiful from nature, whether they be palm trees swaying in an island, whether they be the Arctic wastes, whether they be deserts, tundra steppes. It doesn't matter where you look in the world, we see nothing but beauty, unconditional, remarkable beauty, except where man has intervened. And what Wilde is saying is, imagine belonging to a species where you believe that all you can do to the world is to uglify it, to make it worse, to despoil it, which is what we do. We know that now in real and profound and terrible ways that Wilde couldn't know about because the science hadn't yet discovered quite how harmful we are as a species to our planet. But he could see that we were harmful to our planet in terms of its aesthetics, that we were making the earth uglier, uglier with bad architecture, uglier with badly designed factories, uglier with badly stamped out tin trays and cheap ornaments, ugly with appalling wallpaper. And if you're someone who grows up in such an environment, who is surrounded by badly made, ugly things, then you think ugly thoughts of yourself and the world, you think ugly thoughts of your whole species. There is nothing for you to do but to to, to, to crap in your own nest. It's what, we, it's what we do when we don't believe in ourselves. And so, although it seems a cheap response 
to a question about violence. The aesthetic point of view is actually, I think, a very valuable one, a very profound one, a very extraordinary one. And it makes people think beyond the uh, knee-jerk reflexes of conventional morality, of revealed texts, whether they be the Bible, the Quran, or the Communist Manifesto. It doesn't matter. You've got to think harder than that, Wilde was arguing. And when I now go around universities and things, which I do from time to time, I'm asked to speak or whatever, I find looking at students' rooms, and I don't want you to think I spent too much time in students' rooms, certainly not as much time as I'd like, but occasionally one looks in for a cup of tea and a chocolate hobnob and uh, they kindly show you around. And I've noticed a big change. When I was a student way back when, in the late 70s and early 80s, it was very common for students to have two particular posters on their wall, or variants thereof. They would be Karl Marx, or possibly Che Guevara in famous poses, huge beard of Karl Marx and the famous beret of Che Guevara, and there might well be a poster too of Bob Dylan or John Lennon, or some similar figure, Jimi Hendrix perhaps, maybe even... James Dean, those kinds of figures haunted lost youths. There was a sense that the world would be saved by teenage rebellion, by pop music, rock music, call it what you will, or by revolutionary politics. These were the ideals we clung to. These were the heroes we had, Marx, Lenin. Lenin. In fact, you could say it was Lenin or Lenin who were going to save the world. Now, when I pop by into a fluffy student dorm, into a, into a little room, I tend to see posters, well, very often of Oscar or of Albert Einstein. And they reveal, I suppose, a truth that with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the exposure of communism for what it was, which people, frankly, should have been open to much, much earlier, but perhaps giving them their best possible excuse, their desire to improve the world was such that they were blinded to the evils of communism, Soviet communism, certainly, and Maoism. And rock music, I don't know what happened. Maybe it was the death of Lenin. Maybe it was something else. But the music died, didn't it? And somehow one didn't believe anymore, post-punk, that music was going to save the world. It was all too commercial and it was all too much of a sellout. So who could we admire anymore? Well, we went back to people like Wilde and Einstein. Those are the posters now, because somehow we believe in the power of the mind again, and I think that's a fantastic thing. In the case of Einstein, it's, unless you're a scientist, an inexplicable power of the mind. He has the face of a lined, worn, benevolent internationalist, and we can admire that. We know he stood for peace, we know he stood for no nonsense, but we don't really understand his science. In the case of Oscar, well, Oscar is the prince of Bohemia, isn't he? He's the... He's the student prince. He's the man who represents a refusal ever to leave that permanent state of studentship, which questions things, which delights in sensation, which delights openly in love and other emotions, which questions the values that are imposed from above by our seniors. That's a, a noble thing, a truly noble thing, and Wilde is right to stand there. I often compare Oscar Wilde. I wonder if you've ever done this. It's a marvellous thing. I don't know if you know the city of New York, Manhattan, but there's Fifth Avenue, which is a famous street that goes all the way down past Central Park, and it does literally go downtown. It's a one-way avenue, and it goes down towards Greenwich Village. 
And if you get into a cab at the right sort of time of night when there's not much traffic, the lights are synchronised, the traffic lights are synchronised. Bear with me, this sounds completely irrelevant, but it does have a point. And as you go down, you pass the Empire State Building, once, of course, the highest building in the world. And the buildings that are close to it, because you're low down in a car, appear to be taller because they're closer, so you can't see the top of the Empire State Building because you're too close to it. It's a sort of parallaxy thing, isn't it? But if you twist your neck round and look out the rear window of your yellow cab over the parcel shelf and the lights are all green ahead and the cab is getting a good run down towards Washington Square, Union Square, whatever, you look back and you see the Empire State Building, rise up like a Saturn V rocket. It literally seems to launch upwards, because as you get further away, the buildings closer to it are revealed to be pygmies, and they, they dwarf and diminish, and the Empire State Building rises and rises. Now, I think Oscar's like that in history. From 1900, the year he died, to 2008, where we are now, 108 years later, the further we've got away from him, the more gigantic he is, the more benevolent, the more wise, the more impressive, the more noble, the more right. He was an extraordinary man. And the fact that I'm here on a cold day in Colorado contemplating Oscar gives me enormous pleasure. And I hope, to some extent, you've enjoyed this doodle, this taking a line for a walk as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading and subscribing. Until the next time, goodbye. And my profoundest thanks to everybody at the Positive Internet Company for bringing their expertise to bear on this podcast. You've been listening to Stephen Fry. For more podcasts, blessés and bloggery, visit stephenfry.com stroke blog.